You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. A couple quick announcements before we uh, study the text together. Uh, first of all, thank you for those of you who are in small groups. It's not too late to get into a small group for Lent, although Easter is two weeks away. After Easter, uh, some of us are praying for what we're calling kindred gatherings. A kindred gathering is where brothers and sisters cross lines. Two different congregations, two or more ethnicities, a little bit of a group that gets together to break bread together and get to know each other. It's about building relationships in the family. Uh, kindred gatherings have to be kind of organic. We're going to give you some tools. You can find some on our website. But uh, you think about our partner churches. You think about churches that you know in the area. Um, there's a letter if you want to download that letter that you can send. It kind of explains what a kindred gathering is about. But just really simple and uh, really unstructured. Let's get together, break bread together, and get to know one another. So commend that to your small group and others after Easter. The other announcement is um, I wonder if you know what... This is. This is permission. A few years ago, some of us had a dream uh, that we could build a student center right on Fraternity Row, right where we've got the Shasta House. And this is our permit to start construction. Yes. Yes. We're, it's, it's real. It's real. Now it's getting concrete. We have a contractor. We're about to break ground. And uh, thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your support. If you're saying, hey, I didn't get a chance to give to that, and I really want to be a part of what God is doing to reach uh, college students with hope in Jesus Christ, it's not too late. You can continue to fund that. So thank you. Really excited about that. Now let me uh, direct your attention to the words of Martin Luther King, Jr., Dr. King said, student movements, student movements have done more to save the soul of our nation than anything I can think of. Isn't that interesting? It's why we invest in the lives of students. Student movements have done more to save the soul of the nation than anything I, Dr. King, can think of. Now, we believe that at UPC. We believe that. That's why we love to love students. We also believe with Dr. King that hope is uniquely found for our nation and our world in Jesus Christ, right? What God has done in Jesus Christ in reconciling himself to the world is transformational. Now, Dr. King made that statement in 1961 here in Seattle, right on campus at University of Washington in the old Meany Hall. He came in 1961 to Seattle uh, a little bit as a reluctant prophet. He wouldn't have come here except that his freshman roommate from Morehouse College was a pastor up here, way up here in Seattle, uh, a man by the name of Dr. Samuel McKinney. He was a pastor at a church called Mount Zion Baptist Church over on Capitol Hill. And calling in a favor from an old friend, Dr. McKinney, imposed on Martin to come up here and give a lecture in Seattle. Now, uh, Seattle had its own business in 1961. Some of you know we were getting ready for the World's Fair. Um, and with all of that was going on and some other things, the city didn't exactly welcome Dr. King. Not all of it. You see, uh, 
Mount Zion did not have a venue, a sanctuary that was large enough to host the people that would hear the lecture. And so Dr. McKinney walked a few blocks down the hill to the Presbyterian folks. There at First Presbyterian Church Seattle, they had a room that would seat 3,000 people. And uh, these two pastors on a handshake agreed, we'll do the lecture right here at First Presbyterian Church Seattle. Well, that was well and good as far as it went at that moment, but in time, the publicity went out, the heat started to turn up on both of these churches. There was a lot of resistance to Dr. King's message. And at the last minute, First Presbyterian Church backed out. They broke the contract and they refused to host Dr. King. In 1961, someone like me turned Dr. King away. Now, I know that's history. That happened a long time ago. But we believe that past is prologue. And we believe that the things that happened in the past set the conditions for what can happen in the present. And it matters. History matters. After all, this congregation, our church, was planted by First Presbyterian Church Seattle over 100 years ago. And Mount Zion Baptist Church is our sister congregation here in the Kindred Project today. And this is Seattle. This is our city. God has called us here. I tell you that story because when Jonah finally came to Nineveh, he came as a reluctant prophet. He came to a city that did not welcome him, that had no reason to welcome him. Jonah and Nineveh were different in every way. They were different politically. They were different culturally. They were different ethnically. Of course they're not going to, of course they're not going to welcome a Jewish prophet. But they did. And the, and the Israelite reader, when they read this book of Jonah, they, they get to chapter 3 and they go, What? What? Nineveh, they not only welcomed Jonah, they turned as a whole city. I mean, this is why some scholars think of the book of Jonah as comedy. Come on, this is Mordor, right? And the whole city turns. You're like, it's hard to believe. Jonah is sent by God who believes in justice. Nineveh is a city infamous for violence. Yet they welcome Jonah and they turn. I want to invite you to open up your Bible. Polly read the text for us earlier, um, but I couldn't even find it in the time it took her to read the whole chapter. So I'm going to give you the page number. Uh, it's a small book, 753. Okay, that's where you find chapter 3. I'm not going to read it, but in a moment I'll help you see what goes on in this passage. For now, I want to begin with a story. Several years ago, I was uh, jogging down in Los Angeles. It was one of these beautiful mornings. I had gotten out of bed early in my hotel and uh, went out to the coast and started to work down the beach. And the sun was coming up, and as I ran, it just was one of those perfectly calm, still, silent mornings. I felt great. I thought, I'm gonna, this is going to be a long run. I'm going to run until I'm either out of time or out of gas, and then I'll fight my way back to the hotel. 
And uh, it was a treat to be out there that early. And with time, uh, other joggers started to come out. I was heading south towards, uh, towards Venice. And I don't know how you are, but like when I'm running and I see someone who's ahead of me and they're running, um, it starts to change my pace a little bit, all right? This is probably just me having a middle age trying to have something to prove, but I cannot let that distance stand, nor can I let them pull away from me. It's just, it's just me. So I am working really hard to pass uh, person after person, and I'm able to do it this morning. I'm feeling pretty strong. I'm like, wow, heading towards Muscle Beach. You know, I get a, a skinny guy like me. I start to get a little self-conscious. You know, I don't have that huge, massive, ostentatious display of muscle that those guys have down there on the boardwalk, but I do have a beautiful kind of white skinny endurance, right? And I can run forever, and, and I can run fast. And so I'm running, and um, people are coming towards me out of Muscle Beach, and, and uh, I'm looking at their faces kind of pathetic because, you know, they're, you could see them panting, and like they look like they're going to die, right? They're leaning forward, short little steps, and I'm stretching out, and I'm going, this is awesome. This is me in all my beauty as a runner, right? Um, and I run for a while like that, and I think, okay, it's time to turn around. And I do. I turn around, and immediately I realize I had made a horrible mistake. Massive miscalculation. Because as soon as I turned around, what happened? My shirt blew right into my chest, and there was howling in my ears. I realized it was not a still, calm day at all. I had a tailwind. <laughs> And what I mistook for my strength was actually just the conditions of the context. I had a tailwind that was blowing me down that beach. And as soon as I turned around, the tailwind became a headwind and I was in deep, deep trouble. I immediately knew I was going to miss my meeting. If I'd had any resources with me, I would have hired a car and just taken a drive back. As it was, I thought, I'm just going to keep blowing down to Redondo here because I'm so embarrassed. And you know what? The lesson of that is it's hard to turn. Sometimes it's hard to turn. And particularly around our topic here, which is around race and culture. The reason is race and culture are so deeply hooked into our identity and the ways in which we have been taught to live our lives. Okay, It's hard to turn around those things. Jonah is called by God to go east. Go east to Nineveh. In order to do that, he has to confront his ethnic prejudices. It's hard, right? We see this in chapter one. He goes, I am a Hebrew. You know, I am a Hebrew. And yet he says that on the deck of a boat in the middle of a storm. He's about to be swallowed by a fish. God is blowing him west. He's on his way west, away from Nineveh, away from his own city, even away, he thinks, from the presence of God. It's hard to turn. And yet, here's the surprise. In Jonah 3, Nineveh turns. Oh my gosh, Nineveh. Nineveh turns. How could this happen? So let's pay attention to this. Let me just show you a couple things. There are two things, really. First of all, they trust God's word. Secondly, they put peace in their hands. This is, I think, a description of the turning of Nineveh. First, they trust God's word. Look at verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Now, that word in the Bible, where you see believe, it's always the same word as trust. It's true in the Hebrew. It's true in the Greek. They believed God. Uh, they trusted God. It's just what God was trying to get Jonah to do. Remember last week, trust 
Jonah, I want you to trust me. I can rescue you, even if it takes a fish to do so. Deliverance belongs for the, to the Lord. We learned that last, last week. I want you to trust me. Now, for some amazing reason, just automatically, no fish involved. They don't have to hear the word of the Lord twice. It's the first time it comes to Nineveh. They believe. They trust God. It's remarkable. I love the fact that we don't really hear Jonah's words in this chapter very much. Do you notice this? He's got this message that God gives him. And we're told it's going to take him three days to get through this city. It's a big city. Uh, but on day one, it literally says day one, he says what he says. But then the Ninevites take it from there. Word of mouth is all the rest. This word of the Lord just moves from ear to mouth to ear across this city. They are so receptive to God's words. It's remarkable. The Israelites left to scratch their head and go, wow, man, we got prophets for generations and we try to obey. And Nineveh's like, bam, they believe. They trust. They trust God's word. By the way, that's a great description of gospel fluency. As, as they, they have to learn to hear God's word and then to speak it to one another and to interpret it in terms of their lives. They're moving the gospel to the center of the city. But the other thing that happens is they put peace in their hands. Jump down here, uh, verse 8. Uh, human, this is the king's proclamation. King's, now the king's taken uh, his place in the story. He's, he's, he's dictating now, human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth and they shall cry mightily to God and they shall turn, there's our word, from the evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Turn. Now, um, to turn doesn't just mean to change your mind, change your opinion, get religion. It means to change your life. And this is the word, this is the word turn is the, the normal word for, for, um, repentance. That's the theological language in the, uh, in the Old Testament. It's, it's the word shuv. It just means turn. To be going one direction and then to turn your life around 180 degrees. And notice the emphasis on hands because hands are how you interface with the world. It's how you use your influence on the world. You manipulate the world. And so one point, the Assyrians and Nineveh are, are facing, they're orienting this way with their hands, full of violence. And then in sackcloth and ashes, which is a symbol of, of humility and absolute brokenness, they turn and they fill their hands with peace now, shalom. And so what we see here is a beautiful picture of people who hear God's word and just respond and believe it, and then they turn their lives around in repentance towards peace. For us to say as well, that to turn is to trust the good news of Jesus Christ and to reach for peace in our city. <clears throat> I mean in tangible ways. In ways that engage our hands. So I, what I love about this is that you can see this whole city changes. This is, a, I think what's going on here is, um, by the way, in the 8th century, there were a bunch of weird things that happened. Uh, they were very uh, unstable in the Assyrian Empire at this time. There was a famine, there was a rebellion, there was an eclipse. Right around, this is around 760 and 763 BC, there was an eclipse that happened. And so probably for them, it's very superstitious. But this is not written for Ninevites. It's written for Israelites. And they read this as a provocation. This is meant to be what repentance looks like in Israel. See, Romans 11, 11, Paul tells us that God uses the Gentiles to provoke Israel. And that's what's going on here. This is a model for Israel and for us of what it means to turn. It's not just an interior thing that happens in your heart. It's something that becomes global. It happens in the world. It changes the city. 
And I, I don't want to suggest to you this morning, I want you to think about this. God wants to turn our city too. He wants to turn Seattle. And he's got us here to participate in that. Emerson and Smith published a book through Oxford University Press called Divided by Faith in the Year 2000. And here's the argument they make. This is from the preface, the very beginning. They say, our argument is that evangelicals desire to end racial division and inequality and attempt to think and act accordingly. So far, so good. But, and this is the, this is the finding of their, their research. In the process, they, Christians, likely do more to perpetuate the racial divide than they do to tear it down. Now, this is a, this is a challenging book. And the reason they point their finger at evangelicals is we have a strong theology of repentance. The liability that comes with that, though, is we tend to think it's just about changing the heart. And we tend to think, well, once my heart is changed and I no longer harbor prejudice towards other ethnicities, that I will start to act in a way that changes the world. And they're saying that just hasn't happened historically. It's not enough not to be biased towards other people as long as we're still enmeshed in systems that leave the city just the way it is. A more recent book by James Davidson Hunter argues that Christians will really have their impact not through their ideas, but through the institutions in which they participate. Schools. Nonprofits, arts institutions, government institutions, agriculture, transportation, whatever institutions we're a part of, as we give faithful witness to the peace of God in those places, it's the institutions that leverage our ideas to change the world. That book is called To Change the World. So this is what happens here. The king in Nineveh brings his peace to work. Did you notice that? He brings his peace to work. Now, we tend to think that God's word is, is a private commodity. It's meant for our own personal individual enrichment. It's for uh, our you know, sense of internal sense of, of anxiety. It's mitigated by God's peace, our favorite passages and so forth. That is true, but it's not enough. This king knows that God's truth is a public truth. It's got a global scope. It's for all the world. And somehow he brings it to his workplace. He issues a series of edicts. And the city changes from top to bottom, from the king to the shepherd. By the way, do you notice the animals in the story? They put sackcloth and ashes on the sheep. <laughs> Why? Well, because we're going from the palace out into the fields. And all the cultural institutions between the center of power and the peripheral farthest reaches of powerlessness get touched by this peace. It's a beautiful picture of total transformation in the city. This is why we say, when we hear um, the parable of the Good Samaritan, it's not enough just to be a Good Samaritan and help one person at a time. We actually have to change the conditions of the road. As Martin Luther King says, we've got to fix the road. We have to fix the road. If people, day after day, month after month, year after year, find that the racial differences in our city are cause for hurt, we don't just help the individuals. When do we start to say, hey, we got to look at the institutions that cause that hurt? Well, this is a great picture of what it looks like to do that. 
Tim Keller says, social reform moves beyond the relief of immediate needs and dependency and seeks to change the conditions and social structures that aggravate or cause that dependency. Fix the road. Now, none of us is a king. Few of us are nobles. Maybe we relate more to the shepherds than anyone else. What can we do is the question. You know, what can I do to change a city? Well, not much, but we don't have to do much. We just have to take our hands where we have influence and use them in a way that reflects peace. Think about the challenges of ethnic and cultural difference. What can you do within your playgroup, mom, dad? What can you do, student, at your lunch table? What can you do, employee, at your work team? Or neighbor at your dinner party? Or church member within your small group? In all these ways, you have some influence. What does it mean to take the goodness of the gospel, use your hands, and turn the system? I don't know, but that's our assignment this week. You can tell me next week how it goes. So to begin to engage in that, I think that building relationships with people of other ethnicity and churches is a huge, is a huge way that we do that. Now, there's one more surprise before I leave you. I want you to notice this. As surprising as, as it is to see Nineveh as a city turn, there's an even greater surprise for the Israelite reader, and it's found in verse 9. In verse 8, we see that the city is going to turn. In verse 9, we see something else turning. Let's listen to this. Who knows, the king continues, God may relent and change his mind. He may turn. Wow. That's the same word, shuv. It's the same word that's theologically translated repentance. Here's this pagan king going, I don't know. Maybe the God that this silly figure Jonah speaks about could himself repent. And now, now we think, I don't know if that's beautiful or scandalous or both. And the answer is yes. It points us to the mystery of the cross where God both exhausts his anger and releases all of creation for his love. And I love the fact that what changes the city in Nineveh is hope. Do you hear the hope in this king voice? He says, I don't know, I don't know what we're doing. I don't know who this guy is. But what I, what I think is that maybe this God could actually turn himself. It's hope. He has hope in God. I know some of you probably went downtown and you heard uh, Brian Stevenson this week. He was at Benaroy, he was at SPU, he was here at UW. He's an African-American lawyer, professor at NYU. Uh, he's, he's argued many landmark cases before the Supreme Court. Just um, a very impressive uh, man. He was here giving a lecture. A lot of his work has to do with the reforming cr the criminal justice system. But what he said is, he said, I have hope for America. So I have hope for our criminal justice system. If I didn't have hope, I wouldn't do it. Without hope, none of us can bring change. One of my neighbors is the one who told me that. And uh, he goes, and he, I don't know if he's a believer or not. He said, you know what? I thought it was amazing. Ben Arroyo was packed. And I'm going to tell you, what does that tell you about our culture's hunger right now for answers to these problems? Our culture is hungry for hope around race, ethnicity, culture. And we know the one who brings it. God turns. 
Who knows? Well, Jonah knows. We're going to see that in chapter 4. He knows that God will turn. God already has turned. The Israelite knows God will turn. God already has turned for the Israelite. And the Christian knows. We know. God has already turned. We know a Savior, Jesus Christ, who loves the city. When he comes to Jerusalem this holy week as we approach, we're going to hear him weeping. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He cries out for the city. This is the Jesus who, in the apocalypse, the revelation, writes letters to the cities of Asia Minor, inviting them to good news that changes the city. This is the Jesus who gives John, in that same apocalypse, a vision of the future in a city, a city that comes down from heaven in which there are no more tears. This is our future. See, the point is that when we turn... We find God turning as well. And that changes the nature of the pivot. When you turn, whatever it is you're repenting of this Lent, just know you don't do it alone. God turns with you. On that beach in Los Angeles, it didn't occur to me that there might be a relationship between my turning and the people around me didn't occur to me that there might be a relationship between my sense of strength and their sense of weakness as they came the other direction. It just reminds me of how often I had said to myself in an earlier phase of my life, you know, I don't wish anybody harm. I don't have any prejudicial thoughts. I'm not an angry person. I'm a nice guy. And how much I thought now, I realize, you know, that's not enough. It might just be that... Race not being an issue for me is more a reflection of a tailwind. And when I turned, I all of a sudden identified with others. In that moment, I knew what it was like to be somebody else. I was with them in their weakness. I felt their weakness. And that's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And that's what in, he's inviting the family of God, the body of Christ, to do as well. To find our strength in a self-imposed weakness. To link our hands together with brothers and sisters in Christ. To turn together into the adverse winds of racial pressure and move forward together. Did you know that the Bible describes the Holy Spirit as a wind? The word for spirit in the Old Testament is ruach. I always look for an opportunity to say that in a sermon because I love to say ruach. If it's good, the person in front of you will get wet. Let's go ahead and say ruach, ruach. It's, it's the wind of God. It's the spirit of God hovering over the deep at the waters of creation and then hovering over Jesus Christ and propelling the church out of the world as agents of the new creation to bring the peace of God, the wind of God. And when you and I identify with those who are weak or those who are poor or those who are suffering or those who are on the margins, guess what happens? We can know that the wind of God is going to push us forward into their headwind to share the struggle with them, to change not only our hearts, but to join them in changing our city. Willie James Jennings, the African-American professor I quoted from Yale, says this, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit descended on the disciples and drove them into the languages of the world to enact the joining desired by the Father of Jesus for all people. This is the coming of the one new reality of kinship. 
This is, in effect, the creator reclaiming the world, opening the possibility of boundary-shattering love between strangers and enemies. Oh, and just to close the loop, some 50 years after Martin Luther King Jr.'s one and only visit to Seattle, one day a letter arrived at Mount Zion Baptist Church. The pastor, Dr. Samuel McKinney, was remarkably still there all that time later. He opened an envelope and saw a letter from First Presbyterian Church, Seattle. Tempted to dangle it over the trash can, he pulled his hand back, and he read this from the pastor, who at the time was Jeff Schultz. Reverend Dr. Samuel McKinney, I understand that a great injustice took place at the hands of my congregation many years ago. I would like to meet with you to apologize. And that pastor walked up that hill a few blocks to seek the forgiveness of the pastor of Mount Zion Baptist Church, which was offered and received. A few years later, uh, we started the first Martin Luther King Jr. prayer breakfast. And Alan Belton, who founded that, hosted it at First Press Seattle. Very poignant, very intentional. To bring Dr. King's, the spirit of his legacy, into that place where he was refused entrance so many years earlier. And there was a woman from Mount Zion Baptist Church who sat on one of the pews in that great hall on that day with tears streaming down her face because she remembered. And 50 years later, long time in coming, but it had finally come. She said to herself, this city is turning. Let's be a part of that work, brothers and sisters. We pray with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for shalom. It is for shalom that you made this work. It is in shalom that you have redeemed it. And it is as agents of shalom that you have commissioned us into the world. Thank you for this kindred project. We pray that you will make us good stewards of this moment in our history. May the future, our loved ones, remember that something different happened in this time because brothers and sisters in Christ rose up and said, we are a family. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.